There is a, a scripture that we find in Romans chapter 15. It's a blessing that Paul issues upon the believers in Rome. And this is what he says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about those words. He says, listen, my prayer for you, my prayer for you is that the God of hope, the God who's the source of our hope, with all joy and peace, the things that he provides the world can't provide, as you trust in him, may you overflow with joy. Get, get that in your minds. We're not talking about a glass half full or half empty. We're talking about a life that is so intertwined with the grace and the love and the mercy of God that you are filled with joy and empowered by the Holy Spirit so that your life overflows with hope. Now, let me ask you a question. The people who know you, the people you work with, the people you go to school with, the people in your family, that person, your husband or wife that goes to bed with you at night, if they were looking at your life, would they say, you know what, that person overflows with hope? Or would they say that you overflow with something else? What's wrong with us, folks? Think about it. You are a believer in Jesus Christ. God has loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you, and you have placed your faith in him. You know that no matter what happens in this life, good, bad, or indifferent, that your relationship with God is secure because it's been secured by Jesus. And you know, you know that if you were hit by a car and left this earth, that you'd go to be with God forever. You know it. You've got a salvation that can't be taken away from you and you can't lose it like you do your car keys. No wonder Paul says, listen, my prayer for you is that you'd be so filled with hope, so filled with joy, so filled with God's grace that the Holy Spirit would just well it up within you till you spill all over everybody. That's the people we ought to be. Those are the people who will change the world. Maybe you've seen the, the cartoon, you know, Winnie the Pooh, you got Eeyore. I got to tell you, a lot of church people like Eeyore, aren't they? Wandering around, woe is me. Big cloud over our head all the time. What I want to tell you is life doesn't have to be like that. That's not the way God designed Christian faith. You are not just to be filled with hope, but you're to be overflowing with hope. And when you are, people will notice and it'll make a difference. Today's a special day, or I guess I should say it's an extra special day in the life of Grace Fellowship, not only because we have Powerhouse in here with us, which is always exciting, but uh, today you see we'll be celebrating baptism. Uh, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper, and you'll notice we've moved the cross down onto the floor. I'll tell you about what that's all about here shortly. This day is about hope. 
And we have been given some traditions that are as old as the church itself that constantly, continually point us to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, now what is hope? Hope is not wishing. Birthday, they bring out the cake, got all those candles lit up. You don't have very many candles on your cake. He's got a lot of candles on his cake, okay? All right. And you blow out those candles, and, and what, what do they tell you before you blow out the candles? Make a wish. Now, let me tell you what wishing is. Wishing is based on what I want, or if you're making the wish, what you want, but you're pretty certain you're not getting it. That's what wishing is. You, you can wish for the big stuff, right? I, I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a Lamborghini. I, I wish I had this. I wish I had that. Odds are pretty good I'm not getting that, but that's not hope. See, we get the two confused. Wishing is based on us, what we want, and what we might get. What's hope based on? Hope's based on God. Hope is based on God and his purposes, and therefore we can have a confident assurance that what he has promised will come to pass. That's why we have hope. We have hope because we know that God's word stands. God's promises stand. We can hold to them, and they will not let us down. How can we be confident? Because God has given us a track record of faithfulness. You know people you can count on, people you can trust. Why? Because they've proven it to you, haven't they? They've been trustworthy. They've been good to their word. There are people that you, can, you, could, you could have a business deal with just on a handshake, and you know that they'd follow through because that's the kind of person they are. God's got a track record of faithfulness. It's one of the reasons he gave you this, so that you can see that God makes promises and keeps promises. Maybe you remember the children of Israel. They went around stacking up stones. Why in the world would they do that? Well, there's an incident that happens when the children of Israel, the Israelites cross over into the promised land. They cross over the Jordan River. And when they do, Joshua says, what I would like you to do is for every tribe, 12 tribes, I want you to pick up a stone. And then when they got on the other side of the river and God let the river come back together, they stacked those stones up. And this is what they were told. Whenever your children see these stones and ask you, what does it mean? You tell them what God did here. What was God trying to do? He was trying to give them something tangible, something real, something they could hold on to, and something they could declare that God is faithful. God keeps his promises. And therefore, you can hope in God and not be disappointed. Today, our hope will be expressed in the baptism. It'll be declared in the Lord's Supper. But what we want to finally find is that it is secured in the cross. And so today, we're going to focus on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And we're going to celebrate that. We're going to declare that. Now, when, when, it, comes to, when it comes to baptism, now... Probably most of you didn't know this, but what makes baptism special is, it, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken has their secret ingredients, right? McDonald's has their secret sauce. Do you think there's something secret we put in this water? No, folks. This is the same stuff that you get out of the water fountain. Okay? The water itself is no different. It's a little warmer. That's good, isn't it, that you don't have cold water. 
It's a little warmer, but it's the exact same water that you would get out of the faucet, that you get out of the tap right here at Grace Fellowship. It is really, really no different, but it has meaning, and that's what makes it different. The prophet Zechariah foretold that meaning. He said, on that day, he said, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. A fountain that would make you clean. Now, the Jews knew a lot about ritual washings. Christians aren't the first ones to have baptisms. They had ritual dippings of, of, of hands and feet, washing the feet, and they even washed the the instruments that they used in the temple by dipping them in water. So they had this idea of cleansing that came through this immersion in water. They had these rituals. And so they were familiar when John the Baptist came and he began to to talk to them about coming to the river and being dipped down in it to show repentance for their sins and a new way of life for them. And it was so important that Jesus, in some of the last words that he gave his church, in Matthew 28, he tells us to go and make disciples and to do what? To baptize them, to immerse them. It is this symbolism of being washed and made clean. But the fountain, the fountain you see is not the water. This water doesn't do the cleaning. Because i got to tell you, some of the people I've baptized, we, we would have needed lava soap and Ajax, okay, if we were trying to clean them. Water doesn't do the cleaning. There's an old hymn. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilt and shame. You see, this water, it symbolizes something that we have in Christ that we can have nowhere else. Baptism doesn't save you. But baptism says, baptism says that I am clean. Baptism says I am forgiven in Christ. And because of this, I'm part of the family of God. And so today... As we begin this service, as we consider the hope that we have in Christ, a hope that is expressed in the waters of baptism, let us remember what it means. Let's remember what it is, and let's celebrate it. Now, there's some of you sitting out here, you remember this well. You remember the day you'd come You'd come forward and you may have been crying or you may have been laughing or you may have been scared out of your wits and you came forward and you you talked to the preacher and you said, I want to receive Jesus as Savior and I want to be baptized. And you remember that day that maybe you went to a river or you went to the lake or you came up into a, a baptistry, lifted up high up on a wall somewhere, or maybe in a situation like this. You remember that day. Today, as we come together, we remember that Rejoice in that. Rejoice in what you have. But there may be some of you who have not passed that way yet. And usually, you know, the the invitation in a sermon is kind of at the end of the service. We're doing things differently today. If you need Jesus, 
I don't want you to wait to the end of the service. If today you say, you know what, I recognize that I am a sinner and that I can't save myself and that the only hope I have is in Jesus. And today I want to turn from my sin and I want to turn to Jesus and embrace him. And today I want to declare him as my Savior and I want to follow him as my Lord. I want to tell you, now is the time. Not tomorrow, not at the end of the service. Now is the time. Baptism, as we have described it, is it's not magical, but it is mystical. It's supernatural in the sense of what it represents. And today, uh, we have four people who will come before you to declare their faith in Jesus Christ. And as generations of believers have done before them, uh, they will go under these waters celebrating the newness of their lives in Christ and the cleansing from sin that only comes through Jesus. And so I'm going to ask uh, Joanne Nicholas if she would come first. Now, first of all, I need to let you know that uh, you, I baptized Butch in 2009. And uh, this week I had the privilege of sitting down and talking with Joanne about her readiness to take this step of faith in Jesus Christ. And they were praying about their God's desire, although they've been part of our church for years, uh, about actually becoming a member of Grace Fellowship. And so before I ask her this very important question, I want to ask you, the church members of Grace Fellowship, uh, Butch, would you stand? If you would not only baptize Joanne today, but if you would receive Butch and Joanne as part of our family of faith and pray for them and encourage them and stand beside them. If so, would you signify by saying amen? Amen. Amen. So Joanne, I have a very important question to ask you today, and that is, why are we baptizing you? Because I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, and I want to be ready when he comes. Amen. Amen. Elodie Johnson, where are you? There you are. You may remember uh, it was after Vacation Bible School that uh, that Sunday after Vacation Bible School, uh, our kids' week, that. Elodie stood before you, and I kind of surprised her by having her share with you. This time, we're not surprising her. Um, Elodie, let me ask you today, why are we baptizing you? Because I want to follow Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my Savior, and I love him. Amen. I don't do all the baptizing around here. Um, We have two other pastors who are not only fully capable, uh, but are called to step in and do this kind of thing as well. I'm going to ask Rick Genovese if he would come. This morning I have the awesome privilege of baptizing two of my young girls. And so I'm going to start with Sarah since she's the baby. And it was at Easter that she realized that when she was even younger, she came forward and wanted to be baptized. But this time it was a little different. So I'm going to let her tell you 
why she's being baptized this morning. God died on the cross for my sins, and I want to follow him. I'm going to ask Hannah the th- same thing, if she would come forward. And uh, she, too, was around Easter time, and um, I didn't realize it would be so emotional. <laughs> but Hannah, tell them why we're baptizing you today. Because Jesus died on the cross for me, and I'm, I'm going to be ready for Jesus because I want to go home with them and be in heaven. Would you join me now as we prepare to go to the Lord in singing? Would you join me in offering up a prayer for these who have been baptized, who have taken this step of faith? Because as, as you know, having walked where they've walked, that any time we take a stand like this, we create an enemy. And we have an enemy who prowls around looking like a, roar, like a roaring lion, looking for whom he can devour. And we want to pray that God is going to strengthen these people spiritually and undergird them and uplift them and fill them in such a way that they're ready to stand. And that they got people to stand with them in prayer. You. So let's go to the Lord and pray for them. Father, we thank you so much for what we've witnessed today, the testimony of Joanne and Elodie, Sarah and Hannah. And Lord, we pray, we lift them up to you. We know that they've taken a stand, that they have committed themselves to follow Jesus. And therefore, Lord, uh, Satan will do everything in his power to, to raise up doubt and to create confusion. Lord, in the name of Jesus, we bind his work in their lives and we call upon you to surround them with your angels, to fill to overflowing with your spirit and to empower them to say yes to you and no to self, no to Satan, and no to this world. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We shift our attention from the waters of baptism to this table. And on it we find bread and the cup. And we ask ourselves, why is it that we do this? We've talked about why we do baptism and what it means, but why do we do this? We do it to remember. It is for us as believers another stack of rocks. Another pile of rocks that we can point our children and our grandchildren to and say, listen, we do this because Jesus did that. We eat this bread and we drink this cup not because they are magical. Not because they're supernatural, but because they cause us to remember. What do we remember? In Matthew's Gospel, the 26th chapter, we read these verses. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he offered it to them saying, drink from it all of you. 
This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus met with his disciples in that upper room for that Passover meal. And he took the bread and the cup, which had always had meaning for the Jewish people, and he gave them new meaning. He filled them with new meaning that we celebrate and honor today. The bread is to remind us of the body of Jesus given for us. It is our reminder that Jesus was not a ghost. Jesus was not a mere spirit, but Jesus came to us, born of a virgin, laid in a manger, lived his life with the aches and the pains and the agonies of flesh that you and I also know. He came to identify with us and even more to be one of us, God in the flesh. It is our reminder of the physical nature, the extreme love of God that would have him send his son to be one of us, to suffer and to die as one of us so that we might have hope of life. And the cup, the cup reminds us of Jesus' blood poured out for our sins. Blood being poured out does not sound like a pleasant thing, does it? Well, it wasn't. Never is. We often think about the temple in Jerusalem and how beautiful it was, and it indeed was beautiful. Jesus' disciples commented about its beauty as he walked by, and they observed what man had made for God. But there was an ugly side to the temple. For day after day after day after day, countless people who knew that their lives were stained with sin would carry the blood of pigeons and of doves and of lamb and goats and rams and bulls and calves. And they would take them to the temple and the sounds of livestock being paraded to the altar where the blood of that animal was spilled, poured out as a reminder to the people of just how bad sin is. We minimize it, don't we? We rename it. We relabel it. And yet God's word tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But you see, those sacrifices were offered over and over and over and over again. And they didn't cure the problem that was in the heart of humanity. They didn't make us new. And so God sent his son as the Passover lamb. Without stain or spot or blemish. To die for all sin. Once and for all. And so today we acknowledge that our hope, our hope is revealed in the Lord's Supper. We hope in this. When we eat of the bread, we declare our hope. When we drink of the cup, we declare our hope that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Gentlemen, if you would come forward.
And as they do, let us prepare our hearts to receive the bread and the cup. Lord God, we pause in this moment to remember and to reflect of what this means. So many times we confess that we have eaten of the bread and drank of the cup. We have tasted the dryness of the bread and the sweetness of the cup. And Lord, it has meant nothing to us. May it not be said so today. We do this to remember. And in remembering, to renew our hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've expressed our hope in baptism. We know that our hope is revealed in these elements, in the bread and the cup. And what we want to say finally and supremely is our hope is secured in the cross. The cross, more than any other single thing, symbolizes our Christian faith in a way that nothing else can. Now, you may have a cross made of gold or silver. Many times you see richly ornamented, uh, deeply stained, precious woods. And these crosses are placed in in church buildings, in sanctuaries, and even in your own homes. The cross is two things for believers. The first thing is, and we can't forget this, it is an instrument of suffering and death. It is the Roman version of the hangman's noose, the gas chamber the guillotine. It is an instrument of execution for the worst of criminals. And it should remind us of the depth of depravity in the human spirit that God would come to us and we would kill him as a common criminal. You want to know how bad it gets. That's as bad as it gets. That God would come and be killed as a common criminal. We cannot forget, no matter how beautiful we make our crosses, no matter where we put them in our homes or our churches or our jewelry boxes, we can never forget cross is an instrument of execution. It is hideous. But there's something more about the cross for us. It is not only the instrument of execution for us as followers of Jesus. It is the instrument of our salvation. How can those two things go together? Only God in his great supernatural economy could create something like that, that an instrument of execution could become for us an instrument of salvation. We killed Jesus, humanity, 
And yet, Jesus was not a helpless victim in all this. He wasn't swept up by an angry mob. It's why he came. God's word says this in John chapter 10. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one, listen, no one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Think about it. Not a good man who got caught in a bad situation. But God's son who willingly came for the purpose of dying on a cross in the cruelest way possible that you and I might have life. When we talk about hope, we talk about the cross because without the cross there is no salvation. It is at the same time hideous and glorious. Our hope is there. For the same Jesus who was nailed to the cross rose from the grave and promises resurrection life to all who believe. Therefore, Peter would declare, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You nor I deserved it. It is all of grace born out of God's love that he would send his son to die for us. And now it's up to us what we do with him. You see, God is not going to drag you kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven. He has done everything necessary for your salvation. Nothing more is required except a step of faith on our part. With Jesus, we have eternal hope, but apart from him, we have no hope at all. In John chapter 3, we read, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Get that. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Here then is our choice. We can be overflowing with hope. Or we can be devoid of hope. I'm here to tell you there's no middle ground. We can be overflowing with hope because we know our salvation is secure in Jesus and nothing can touch it. Or we can be without hope. We're wishing. But we don't know. There's no confident assurance. 
but there can be. This cross is simply representative of the cross upon which Jesus died. But here's our hope. That we have a God who loved us so much that he would send his son to die for us. That whoever would believe in him shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. If you're ready to take that step of faith, we're ready to help you know what it means to follow Jesus. And in a moment, we're going to sing a final song. And if you've been sitting here and the Holy Spirit's just been digging in you and saying, this is your moment, this is your time, if God's grace is just drawing you with cords of love to himself, today's your day to respond. If you need a church home, a place to belong, a place to learn and to grow and to serve and to share and to celebrate, and God's calling you to be part of us, then, then come. If you simply need to come and repent, as you're a believer, you know you are. You're part of the church, you know you are. But your life is not marked by hope, but by fear and anxiety and all kinds of other things that don't reflect who you are in Christ. And you just want to leave it behind. Today's your day. And I want to open up this invitation in one other way. We've asked you for the last two weeks to think of people that you know, you work with, you go to school with, your neighbors, your friends, your family members who just don't know Jesus. We've asked you to write their names down and begin to pray with them. Today, we're going to take it a step further. The reason this cross is now surfaced with this white board is to give you an opportunity to take these markers, And to write the initials or the first name of the person or persons you're praying for. We're going to start that today. We're going to carry it through October. And you can come in at any time. Monday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday before the service, at the invitation time. And you can come in and write initials and stop and pray for a moment for that person. And I want to encourage you to take some time before the service and after the service to linger. And you may not know what that RW stands for, but you can pray for them because guess who knows? God knows. And so now we go to a time of commitment, dedication, decision, and prayer. I open it up to you to respond in whatever way God leads you as we stand to sing our final song this morning. Would you stand with us?